Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Welcome to the HR for Small Business Podcast. This is your host, Brandon Laws. Today, I'm with Lee Caraher. She is the author of Millennials in Management, The Essential Guide to Making It Work at Work. And she's also the founder of Double Forte, their communications firm, located in, I believe, San Francisco, but you have maybe a couple other locations, Lee? Yes, we have offices in New York and awesome. in Boston as well. Well, as I mentioned before we started recording, I read your book, Millennials in Management, cover to cover. I felt like you gave away the farm on this book. I feel like you... <laughs> that I was mean, my point. I wanted yeah, to give away the farm. <laughs> you, you, um, you had so many tangible takeaways. There's guides. There's just from your own experience and from all the research that you've done. And I felt like you started the book. You painted a very beautiful picture. It was it was a little bleak in, in my opinion, but it's just it set the landscape up correctly. So you mentioned that employers and workplaces are in kind of this funky little spot where boomers, they're not retiring as soon as they thought they would. Mm -mm. They are not financially in a great spot. So they're staying in the workplace longer. And meanwhile, uh, employers are trying to figure out ways to offset the the overhead costs. So they're hiring cheaper labor, uh, those that are coming out of school and Mm -hmm. experience. So now you have this kind of clash of generations where millennials are like, hey, why are these boomers still here? But at the same time, boomers aren't going anywhere. So these need, these two generations need to work together. Can you just sort of paint the picture a little deeper for the listeners? Sure. So I think we're in a situation where we have actually four generations in the office together right now. So the silence, people who are over 68, the boomers who are between 53 and 68 or 69 this year, uh, Gen Xers who are 37 to 52, and then millennials, so 20-year-olds to 36-year-olds. And this is the first time in American history we've had four distinct generations working side by side. There are a few things in there. One, obviously those generations are very broad and we shouldn't say all millennials are the same and all boomers are the same and all that kind of stuff. But there are definitely things that are in common in those generations, right? One thing that is definitely providing a lot of suppression or, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a push down is that we have boomers and silent generation people who thought they would not be working, right? <laughs> who thought they would not have to work or that they would, you know, do something um, different in the world, uh, maybe for money, but it wouldn't be a huge concern. Well, it's a huge concern. And that huge concern, meaning, you know, so many boomers and sound generation people lost so much money in mm. 2008, 2009, 2010, that um, they're still recovering from that. I'm a boomer. I know how much I lost. I'm still recovering. So, mm. um the need to work versus the want to work, right, has at the same time as it was, a, you know, coming out of the Great Recession, at the same time as a tsunami of millennials are coming out of college, it just creates uh, a lot of hardship in terms of keeping jobs, finding jobs, and then having a lot of mobility in jobs. 
And there's just a lot of bitterness, right? A lot of boomers who said, Ugh, I don't want to work. And then millennials are like, I, how come I'm not getting the job that I was promised basically by my education? And that's just sort of t- sets up a lot of tension in the workplace at the same time as millennials are so much more adept technically. And they also have so many different expectations based on their upbringing, education, and parenting. So it's just a clash. At the same time, you know, if you ask Gen Xers, Gen Xers would say boomers are much more entitled than millennials. So, you know, we just got a big melting pot of conflict if you don't like get in there and try to understand each other. It's so interesting because later in the book you talk about there's a short chapter on mentorship. And what I yeah. find interesting is that these generations are very different, but they each have something to offer each other. And I feel okay. like especially as boomers have gone through this period where they didn't set themselves up financially and they're delaying retirement. It seems like that's a really nice learning lesson for these millennials. So, I mean, millennials can teach maybe some technology Mm -hmm. to some of these boomers, but at the same time, boomers can teach them life's lessons about work hard and (laughs) be smart about your finances. Like, what do you think about that notion alone? Yeah. Well, I am a strong advocate for mentorship and actually mutual mentorship where the mentor and the mentee sort of flip roles every once in a while. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's lots to learn from everybody. It is my shortest chapter. My publisher's like, can you make that longer? I'm like, I have nothing else to say except go do it. You know, (laughs) I love it. I love it. There is so much to learn. It is also a different relationship. Mentees today, younger people, they want mentorship. It's the number one request of young people coming into the workplace. Who's my mentor going to be? Number one. And then number two, it's not the same kind of mentors that I would have had when I was, you know, that age. I was trying to emulate people and millennials in general are trying to learn from other people's experience so they can create their own experience, not to emulate. Um, And so, That is interesting. I think the most important thing for a good mentor-mentee relationship is to share your reading list. Like, what do you read every morning? And then have your mentor read what you read and have the mentee read what the mentor reads. And because it's very different worldview based on what we read every day, which is new. That's a new phenomena, obviously, given, you know, everyone read read the same things when I was a millennial's age. But there's so many options to get information from today. If we can change each other's reading list, you know, just share each other's reading list for a month, it will help us understand each other better. When you ask the question, and you did a ton of research for this book, but when, mm-hmm. when you'd ask like, oh, how do you describe millennials? And you ask not only boomers and Xers, but you also ask millennials about millennials. Yes. What are just some common things? I mean, we I think we've heard some of the you know entitlement, trophy generation, those sort of things. But what what would you commonly hear? Well, first of all, millennials don't like being called millennials. And in the end, all it does is tell you when you were born. It tells you you were born between 1980 and 2000. That's all it really says. But there's such a weighted word because there's so much negativity, you know, imbued in it by boomers in the workplace. I actually didn't set up to write the book. I set up to fix a problem in my own company and. And when I started researching, everything was so, so negative, And I was just determined not to believe all the ne- It's impossible that 80 million people are all negative. So uh, what I sort of stripped away that and tried to figure it out, I thought, you know, here's the, the top things are they're entitled. They uh, want a trophy just for showing up. They aren't hard workers. They can't get anything done. You know, the list goes on. And when I was asked to write the book, uh, I was determined then to really look at those myths and see, you know, are they real, are they contextual, or are they absolutely false? And for the most part, I thought they were false. You know, I don't think millennials are entitled. I think they've been conditioned by their growing up, by the technology and by their parenting, which I think is been terrible, <laughs> terrible in the education system, which has um, not helped them, frankly, in terms of great inflation and expectations. And then it is definitely true that the expectation for reward and, you know, money and title and all that kind of stuff does occur a lot. And that's, you know, there's a lot of 
research and, you know, in the back of my book, I have all those different sources. You can go read them all if you want. But, you know, parents have done no favors with everybody wins soccer and participation trophies because that is not the way the world works. The world does not work with, thank you for coming. Here's a prize. You know, it doesn't work that way. Game shows don't work that way. And life does not work that way. Um, and business definitely doesn't work that way. So, you know, they're particularly the first three or four years of someone's career. It's like getting used to not getting huge accolades for just showing up on time. You're supposed to show up on time. You're supposed to be dressed. You're supposed to like have good hair. You know, you're supposed to not smell. Those are the things we expect. You don't get a gold star for those things. In terms of other other piece, I totally disagree that millennials are lazy. I totally disagree that I can't get anything done. It just looks very different. And the people who say those things aren't looking hard enough. They aren't looking at the changing workplace. They're changing work styles and how things happen. So we really just have to understand what we mean when we say some words. So I'll give you a good example. A good example is send me a draft, right? I think I, t- I talk about this in my book. Send me a draft. Well, when I say send me a draft, I'm 52 years old. I mean send me a Word document without any typos, without any comments, without any you know word changes, whatever. Send me a clean draft, and I will comment on it. Thank you very much. What millennials often do is send me a Google link to a Google Doc that has Lots of comments down the side that aren't resolved, typos, you know, different colors, lots of people in there at the same time. This is not a draft to me, right? This is nowhere near a draft. This is a live document. When I'm editing something as the head of my agency, I am the word, right? And this collaboration is something I really had to learn, this live collaboration on documents. I had to totally learn. This is natural. This is how kids are learning in school today. And just because, you know, I didn't get what I wanted doesn't mean I didn't get what I asked for. Right. I asked for a draft. I got a draft from your point of view. I didn't get a draft from my point of view. So there's this language issue that we just have to break through and understand. I found myself highlighting the main section about giving clear direction. I think you have a whole chapter yeah. dedicated. To, I found myself highlighting most of that because often we're saying like, hey, I need this, you know, vague instructions by end of day. Like, what does that yeah. really mean? You you painted the uh, picture perfectly to say, I need this two pages, no more than two pages long with clear instruction by 5 p.m. on Tuesday. That yeah. seems simple on the surface, but that's genius. And I, I found myself <laughs> like, as a manager, you're like, gosh, I could get better about how I communicate and give direction. Well, I think that you know, when you're a manager, the worst thing you can do is give direction that lets the person you're directing be right and wrong at the same time. Hmm. Right? So I could say, please give it to me by end of day next week. Well, All right, so I'll get it at 11.59.59 p.m. on Friday. That is not end of day. It is technically the end of the day at the end of the work week, right? Yeah. (laughs) But that is not what we mean by it. And the things that we say by end of day or close of business or later or tomorrow, those actually used to mean very specific things. Close of business was 5.30. Beginning of business was 9 o'clock. You know, later was before you closed your computer or you left the office that day. Tomorrow was first thing in the morning, meaning 9 o'clock. Those don't mean anything today in our 24-7 world depending on what your time zone might be different. You might have a flexible work schedule that says, I'm going to go and go to my kid's uh, ballet lesson, and then I'm going to go on later night tonight. So we, by just saying, oh, I'll give them to you later, 
we let the person be right and wrong. And that is the worst place you can be as an employee to be right and wrong at the same time. Because if you're right and wrong at the same time, your manager thinks you're wrong. So it's on to to the manager's responsibility to see exactly what they want. Because there's so many different meetings today. There didn't used to be so many meetings, right? There didn't used to be so many different modes of communication, different modes of presentation, all these kinds of things. But today there are. So it's on us to be very specific. And it's on the person being directed to say, okay, do you mean by noon Pacific time tomorrow? (laughs) Or I'm on the East Coast. Do you mean noon Eastern time tomorrow? Because that specificity, first of all, alleviates so much, so much drama, right? So much. That's the number one complaint is they're always late. Well, duh. They didn't get into them late from their point of view. It's 11.59 p.m. on this Friday. It was the end of the day, end of the work week. The more you can do on that, the better it is. You talked a little bit ago about grade inflation, and in the book you mm. discuss this at length. But I actually I want to ask you about how the schooling, the education system, and just the behaviors and habits that millennials have really developed in school about acing tests or just trying to ace tests and then move on to the next subject immediately. How do you think this sort of behavior has shifted the way or I guess molded the their habits in the workplace? Well, the one and done not to be political, but particularly around No Child Left Behind, where mm. it was all about the test and not necessarily mastering the content, but mastering yeah. the test, moving on. And what we know, and you can read in my book, you know, all the data, but most higher education, great institutions, UC Berkeley, you know, these schools in the last 15 years have had to increase the percentage of their students who have to go into remediation for reading and writing. And at one time, Berkeley had over you know, one of the top institutions in this country, in the world, had more than 50% of its students, the top students in the world, going into remediation in either reading or writing because they hadn't mastered it. They'd gotten really good on the test, but then they had to move on to the next thing so they could achieve, so they could get into the college, so they could get the degree. So the one and done phenomena that has happened, right? That is clear. So when people get into the workplace, I'm done. And you know, <laughs> here it is. And it's not done. It is not to standard. It is not client ready. It's not work ready. It's not, you can't present it. It's subpar, but there hasn't been enough time in the education process to have, to really iterate, right? There's not a lot of time in, in the test, 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 test world to actually to have an iteration, right? That's changing now. Um, You know, younger kids today are having a different education system than the kids who are getting out of college today, right? But it's going to take a while, but it definitely has that, you know, often millennials in their first year, they're like, I'm done. Well, Mm. yes, you're done with your first try. Now, here's what you need to do. No, but I'm finished. Well, it's not ready yet, but I've been an A student my whole life. Well, this is not A work, right? And that phenomena is relatively new. That is a millennial phenomena, given sort of great inflation and what's happened there. You, uh, early in the book, talked about the two informational interviews you gave. Um, <laughs> uh, you, I'm sure you've done many over the over the years, but yes. there is a tale of two, uh, one where they're completely opposite of each other. Can you describe that real quick? Sure. I thought was, it was awesome. Um, <laughs> I give any informational interview that is asked of me. This is how I got my career off the ground and it's something that we can do to pay it forward. And if I can't do it myself, I arrange for it, right? And I've probably given my assistant counted. That's almost 2,000 in my career now. Wow. I don't remember all those people. I'm always embarrassed when someone says, oh, you gave me an information interview. I'm like, I'm so sorry to remember you. <laughs> anyway, I remember these two really well because <laughs> they were next to each other. They were the uh, one day... And the next day, this was in 2010 or 11, when no one could find work. And I was doing favors for two of my friends, their friends, kids, or we were on boards together, whatever. And the first woman showed up and she had graduated from college and 
she walked in and she said, so when do I start? And I was like, uh, start what? The interview? We're starting right now. She was quite indignant. Like, my father told me there was a job here. I'm like, well, no, we don't have a job open. But I'm very happy to talk to you about what you want to do in your career and help you connect with people and look at your resume to give you. No, my resume is perfect. And I looked at it. It was not. Um, and all this kind of stuff, right? And then she said, well, I got a, a job offer, but I can't take that job offer because they don't pay me enough. And I said, oh, well. Who was it? it? She told me it was a great firm. How much? She told me it was a good salary. And I said, well, why didn't you take that job? Well, I want to live by myself in San Francisco. Well, most young people cannot live by themselves in San Francisco with either having a roommate or having help from their parents. So I was just so irritated. I, she was just kept going and going and going. I was like, I literally dialed the phone. Polycom was there and I dialed her dad. I said, hello, Jim for lack of a better word. And I said, hi, you know, your daughter Sally's here. And I think we had some miscommunication because, you know, there is no job here, but I'm very happy to help her. And uh, she seems to think there's a job. He was silent on the other line. And I know, because I was back and forth on email and he had emailed me back. Absolutely. I told her there's no job. Said, uh, and she had a job offer. Don't let her not take the next job offer. So I should not have done that, but I was so irritated. Anyway, so I got off the phone. I said, you need to, you know, she was living at home. I said, how are you? You know, are you working? Are you contributing at home? What are you doing? Nothing, nothing and nothing. So we'll go get a job. If you're living at home on your dad's dime, you're not going to get a job like that. In this environment, we want people who have initiative. And she, you know, sort of stormed out. The next day, a woman came in and same situation. She had a degree in costume design from Emory University in Boston. And she had been in a theater group as a costume designer. And one day she looks around, she goes, everyone in my group here is 50 years old and has three jobs to make it work. I could do costume design on the side. And I don't want to have to have three jobs when I'm 50. So she moved home and she got a job as the genius coordinator at the Apple store near her house. And she paid her parents rent and she did chores. And so she came into the office for an information review the next day. And she told me that she told me, I said, tell me your story. And I was determined to be better because I sort of mortified that I'd called her the other person's dad, you know, the next day. She told me her story. I was like, do you want a job? <laughs> I didn't have a job. And I <laughs> you said, made Do you one. Want to be an intern here? You can start next week. And I, she goes, really? I'm like, yeah. I said, she goes, I don't know if I want to do this for a week. It doesn't matter. You're going to have great experience. You're going to learn a lot. We'd love to have you here. And so she started the next week and I went out of my office after that. And I, I told my CFO, I said, I just hired an intern for $15 an hour. He goes, what? We don't get, we don't have a job. I'm like, yeah, now we do. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's the tale of two people who, you know, same situation, different response to it and different expectations around what their responsibility was as an adult to uh, make things happen for themselves in their career. I think regardless of the, the generation, everybody likes feedback. Maybe millennials like feedback a little bit more and appreciation and those sort of things. In your chapter on acknowledgement and appreciation, you talk yeah. about the two powerful statements that could just make the difference in managing millennials and just letting them know that you appreciate the, the work that you're doing. What are those two statements? Please and thank you. <laughs> so simple, right? <laughs> this was really hard for me to learn, though. So I grew up with a, my father is a cardiac surgeon, and we grew up with the, the thought process that, you know, please and thank you are implied. Because as you described to me, you know, Lee, if I asked for, you know, if I said, please give me the retractor or please give me the scalpel every time I asked for one in the operating room, the patient would die. You know, cardiac surgeons are a certain way. Whatever you see on television is true. And, you know, I just grew up without really saying it that much. And when I started researching this, there's a ton of research from places like Harvard, the London School of Economics, Wharton, Stanford, 
about the role of happiness and appreciation in work. And it's empirically true that the teams that feel appreciated outperform the teams that don't, and you can measure it to the bottom line. So if you can help just say please and thank you, that's the easiest way you can have people understand that you understand that they are people and they are making an effort, but they don't have to because they don't. They could walk out the door. So please and thank you, please and thank you. You know, I started doing this and I felt like such a tool. I mean, Brandon, I was like, no one's going to believe me. Everyone's (laughs) going to think that I'm just trying to be, you know, kiss their butts and blah, blah, blah. But I just stuck with it. And by the end of the first month, everyone was saying, please, thank you. And by the end of the first quarter doing this, we could see, and we track all our time in the agency, we could see that there was less time spent in non-billable activity, less time wasted. And the only thing we could figure out that we changed was saying please and thank you. So, you know, when people feel appreciated, that you understand that they're making an effort, that you understand that they have done something for you, that, you know, uh, you're going to interrupt their flow by asking them to do something new. With appreciation comes less resentment and comes no resentment, really, right? And when you have resentment in your organization, what you have is waste. You have waste of time, waste of energy, and it's a downward spiral of unproductivity. When you have uh, appreciation, you don't have any of that. You have nothing dragging you down in terms of emotion. And the more lighthearted, the more you are, the less negative energy you have, the more productive the organization is because they're working better because they're not being dragged down by their feelings because we're all human, right? We want to be appreciated. I don't want to show up on that worth. You know, people don't care if I'm there. So that's the first, you know, please and thank you. And there are lots of ways to do it, but please and thank you will save your day. I've got two more questions for you and then I got to cut you loose because I know you have to go. It sounds like you've really put a lot of thought and probably trial and error into this whole work-life balance thing. What have you found millennials want from the work-life balance thing? And then what should employers be doing to set expectations around a proper work-life balance integration? I think work-life balance is a misnomer. Work-life balance says there's work on one side of the scale and there's uh, life on the other side of the scale. And in today's world, our work and our life are really integrated in and out of our day. They flow in and out, in and out. And the first thing I tell all of my employees is to read your personal email all day long because if you're volunteering somewhere, if you have kids, and you know every every parent now volunteers at their school, they have to. If you don't read your email to the end of the day, you are stuck cleaning up and setting up, right? Instead of bringing brownies with no edges. So read your email all day long. You know it doesn't mean like three or four times a day. Go look at your email because our lives are totally integrated, right? Things are happening that impact our. It used to be for parents they would send home a, a note. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. We get emails, there's systems, all this kind of stuff that pings us all day long. So, um, and it's true with our volunteer work, it is true with the world. So understanding it's not as much balance as it is, meaning like one versus the other, life ends and work starts or work starts and life ends. It's more about, do I get to the end of the day and did I have a good work experience? Did I have a good life experience? Did I have a good self experience? You know, those three things for every person. And the self experience could be, you know, did I work out? Did I have time to be quiet with myself? Did I get to do something I like to do today? And the life experience can be family, uh, volunteer work, your, you know, your school, whatever it is, you know, husband, your wife, your kids, whatever it is. But those three things really are the three things you know, you need another set of the scale. So you have three things there, right? And then how do you manage your day so that by the end of the day, you can say, yeah, I had a pretty good experience in all three things. 
So that's important. Number two is important. How do you do that, right? How do you do that is to be over-communicative, um, is to say, my, I don't get the good life and the good self unless I get the work done first because the work is paying me so I can do these other things. And that's just, you know, empirically true. So how you arrange your work so that you can have the least friction is all about communication. So if Brandon, you and I are working together and you're going to leave at three o'clock, I work for you, you're leaving at three o'clock. And you're not going to be back online until tomorrow morning at nine. But I need to get you something. Well, you telling me the, the previous day that I'm leaving, you're leaving at three o'clock says, I'm going to get something to Brandon by five o'clock today so that tomorrow he can give it back to me. It can be done. And I don't have to be, you know, wandering around with my head cut off. If you tell me that day you're leaving at three and I haven't planned for that, well, there's no way I can actually satisfy your need to have something done by three o'clock because I didn't know. Right. So it's a lot of communication, much more communication than we ever need before in the workplace. But if we can't do that, we can't have these three things be be wise. And I think, you know, saying you can do it all is crap. Right. <laughs> I, I really have a hard time, particularly with people, you know, women who are like, I can do it all. And, then I, you know, I'm a woman and I have a great life and I have a great family and I've got good self time. I have a good career. But I don't do all of those things at the same time. And men never did all of those things at the same time. So the, the expectation that women should be able to do them is false. We could talk about that for days. But oh, we could, we, we could keep talking forever. <laughs> but I want, I did want to wrap up by asking you one thing about career pathing. So do you feel like there's a disconnect between what millennials say, where they want to be or what they want to do and the actions that they actually take to possibly achieve those desires in the end? I think young millennials, like young people, throughout the centuries don't really necessarily know what they want because they don't really know what it is to work and what mm -hmm. possibilities are. So, you know, I was just having this conversation earlier today with a young person who's like, well, I don't I'm getting out of college soon. Oh my God, I have these two job offers. And they're so different. And I just looked at him and I said, well, where do you want to live? They're two different. Where, where do you think you want to live? Well, I'd rather live in San Diego. I'm like, well, then take the job in San Diego. But what if it's a better job over here? I said, it doesn't really matter. Just getting your first job is the first mm -hmm. job. And then you'll figure it out. I think people put a lot of pressure on themselves saying, this is the only thing I'm going to ever do in my old career. And today we know that people will have at least three or four careers, not like linear jobs up the thing, up the chain, right? Those really don't exist anymore. It's more of a latticing situation today where, you know, you're in a job and you're like, oh, I'd rather do, I'd like to do this. So I go get some schooling, I get some education and I go do this and then I go this and I, you know, lily pond around. But there's a lot of pressure, particularly for millennials who are graduating from college with lots of student debt, to get the job that's going to pay it back. My point of view is boomers really have, and managers have to help millennials sort of ease the pressure off themselves so that they can actually discover what they really are good at and what they want to do. Lee, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Lee, you're the author of Millennials and Management, The Essential Guide to Making It Work at Work. I read this, loved it. I encourage everybody to go out and get this book. It's it's so great. And you can find it on Amazon, I believe, and, and mm -hmm. you probably have it a couple other places. Yes. You have another book coming out, though. Can I do. Just briefly talk about that. Sure. And it's for pre-order, I believe. It is. My next book is available on in April. It's called The Boomerang Principle, um, Inspiring Lifetime Loyalty from Your Employees, Even If They Don't Work For You. And this is all about how companies need to um, you know, adjust their thinking from, you know, if you leave me, you're dead to me, to how do I keep you you know loyal for your entire career, regardless if I pay you or not. And there's a lot of benefit to, you know, creating a culture that is uh, particularly in a, in a situation where we think millennials are going to job hop because they do. They job hop a lot. They've been told to. Um, and if you stop worrying about it and start 
start, stop worrying about them job hopping and start, start worrying about making it the best experience possible. One, people stay with you longer, they're more productive. Two, they stay loyal to you even when they leave you. And they may even come back to you, which is um, if you have an uh, organization that people want to return to and are allowed to return to, you are a business that's set up for the future. Amazing. Lee, thank you so much for joining the podcast. You've been amazing today and we appreciate you big time. Thank you so much, Brandon. It's such a joy to talk with you. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only. It should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com. <laughs>